When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night. Ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end... What will I become? Senwa Saga. Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. We worship an awesome God in the blue states. The, the president's uh, problem is that he was born a Muslim. Not God bless America, God damn America. My Christian faith then has been a sustaining force for me over these last few years. Marriage itself is now being redefined, and at a very incredible velocity. President Obama made it very clear that he wanted to be the abortion president. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound. Welcome to the history of evangelicals and politics, the Obama era. This is episode two, Obama Goes to Church. I'm John Fia. In June 1985, roughly two years after his graduation from Columbia University, Barack Obama accepted a job with the Developing Communities Project, an organization founded to help improve the lives of black residents living in Southeast Chicago. Obama worked as a community organizer in five different Southside neighborhoods, suffering from the economic consequences of the steel industry's collapse in the 1970s. He helped these neighborhoods get their streets cleaned and garbage removed. He assisted welfare mothers in their efforts to obtain access to daycare and job training. And he mobilized residents to get City Hall to remove dangerous asbestos from their apartment buildings and gangs and drug dealers from their streets. He worked with the descendants of ordinary laborers who came to the Windy City as part of the, the great migration of Southern Blacks during and following World War I. Obama described the people with whom he would spend the next three years trying to organize as laid-off steelworkers, secretaries and truck drivers, men and women who smoked a lot and didn't watch their weight, shopped at Sears and Kmart, drove late-model cars from Detroit, and ate Red Lobster on special occasions. They lived in what Martin Luther King Jr. described as the North's most segregated city. Obama won small victories as a community organizer, a neighborhood cleanup effort here, and a career day for youth there. Public playgrounds were improved, 
streets repaired, crime watch programs started, and youth counseling programs created in public schools. Obama built relationships with community members and soon grew loyal to the people of the neighborhoods in which he worked. Developing Communities Project was funded by nearly a dozen Catholic churches, mostly with white priests. But most of the organizing took place among African-American Protestants, mostly Baptists and Pentecostals. As Obama settled into his work, these Christians started asking questions about his spiritual life. They wanted to know what motivated him to get involved in community organizing. Why hadn't he joined a church? When he did attend services, the women teased him because he seldom understood the religious significance of what was happening. As we saw in episode one of this podcast, Obama did not have any spiritual upbringing to speak of. I had no community or shared traditions in which to ground my most deeply held beliefs, he wrote in The Audacity of Hope. Part of Obama's organizing strategy was to knock on church doors in the hopes of meeting local black clergy and convincing them to support the efforts of the Developing Communities Project. One of those ministers was Alvin Love, the young pastor of the Lilydale First Baptist Church. Love befriended Obama, and they talked honestly about Christianity. He would later say that Obama was convinced that he needed a moral base for his community organizing and was not sure how much longer he could work for a faith-based organization without a serious connection to a local church. According to Love, Obama did not want to merely join a church for convenience sake. He wanted to be serious and comfortable about his decision. Obama visited many churches, but Love said that it took some time before he started understanding these visits in terms of worship rather than work. Obama agreed. The Christians with whom I worked recognized themselves in me. They saw that I knew their book and shared their values and sang their songs. But they sensed that a part of me remained removed, detached, an observer among them. Love thought Obama should talk with a more seasoned black pastor. He suggested L.K. Curry of Emanuel Baptist Church. This is the person that Obama called Reverend Phillips in his memoir, Dreams from My Father. Curry and Obama talked about slave religion, the survival, freedom, and hope of the black church in the age of Jim Crow, Martin Luther King's failed 1965 visit to Chicago, white flight on the South Side, and the popularity on the South Side of the black Muslims. The veteran clergyman asked Obama a simple question, one that by this point was not new to the community organizer. Where does your faith come from? It had suddenly occurred to me, Obama would later write, that I didn't have an answer. Perhaps still I had faith in myself, but faith in oneself was never enough. Curry encouraged Obama to join a church and then recommended that he visit Reverend Jeremiah Wright Jr., the pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ. Wright's church was growing and his message, Curry believed, would appeal to a young person like Obama. Wright grew up in Philadelphia, the son of a Baptist minister and a math teacher. 
His father, Jeremiah Wright Sr., served 42 years as the pastor of Grace Baptist Church in Germantown. Wright Jr. attended Virginia Union University, a historically black school in Richmond, but left college to serve his country in the Marine Corps and eventually the U.S. Navy. In 1967, he enrolled at Howard University in Washington, D.C., where he received a bachelor's degree and a master's degree in English. He then earned a master's degree in religious history from the University of Chicago Divinity School, where he considered the esteemed Lutheran church historian Martin Marty as a mentor. When Wright became pastor of Trinity United Church of Christ in 1972, the church was 10 years old and struggling. The congregation seldom had more than 100 people in attendance each week, mostly middle-class, upwardly mobile black men and women who Wright would later say were worshiping like white people in a denomination largely made up of white congregations. As numbers dwindled, the leaders of the congregation asked, are we going to be a black church in a black community? Or are we going to continue being a white church in black face? They chose the former. It was the only path of survival. In 1971, interim pastor Reuben Shears concluded that from this point forward, Trinity would operate under the motto, unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. And they hired Wright as their new pastor to carry out this mission. Wright gradually replaced the church's European style or classical sacred music with choirs that sang anthems, hymns, spirituals, gospel music, and eventually hip-hop, Caribbean music, and African and South African music. Many of the founding members of Trinity left the church, but the revamped choirs began attracting new members. One Trinity member recalls it as an interesting and exciting time in history. There was this idea of being black and proud, knowing your heritage. Singing songs from out of our cultural tradition was far more empowering than singing old fuddy-duddy songs from the Pilgrim Hymn Book. As Wright shaped his new congregation, he always kept in mind the words of the early 20th century black historian W.E.B. Du Bois, who taught that there were three ingredients to every black church, the preaching, the music, and the Holy Spirit. If you removed any one of these elements, Du Bois believed, you would no longer have a black church. Instead, you would have a social club, a mutual aid society, or a mutually congratulatory bourgeois Negro gathering. Wright started a ministers in training program that required local seminarians from the church to read books by African and African-American authors before finishing their studies. And he overhauled the church's education ministry for children by developing a curriculum focused on great African and African-American voices. Over the years, Wright created program after program to bring the black social gospel to those who needed it the most. This included ministries devoted to drug and alcohol rehabilitation, the spiritual care of prisoners, and those suffering with HIV AIDS, domestic abuse, and mental health issues. Trinity established an elementary school, a magazine, a credit union, two senior citizen housing complexes, a hospice, a ministry to support black causes in Africa and the Caribbean, 
and a higher education corporation that worked with historically black colleges and universities. In keeping with Wright's Afrocentrism and appreciation of African and African-American history and culture, Trinity celebrated New Year's Eve with watch meeting worship services to commemorate the vigil enslaved Africans held on December 31st, 1862, as they waited the January 1st, 1863 issuing of the Emancipation Proclamation. Very early in his tenure at Trinity, Wright introduced Kwanzaa and African Thanksgiving services. In 1977, Wright posted a Free South Africa sign outside the church. It stood there until apartheid ended. The sign even caught Obama's eye upon his first visit to the church. We took it all. We brought them to our land. An endless night, ember hot and icy cold. The rage of the earth. We made this curse. Carved it in the blood on our backs. We did not see. We could not, but she did. And in the end, what will I become? Senwa Saga, Hellblade 2. Play it now with Game Pass. Under Wright's leadership, which lasted until 2008, the church grew astronomically. Trinity was the largest united church of Christ in the country, and Wright led the congregation through the building of two new structures. When he retired, it had 8,000 members. In 1981, Trinity wrote a statement articulating what they called a black value system. It was designed to explain to congregants, visitors, and the general public what it really meant to be unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. It called Trinity members to commit to God, the black community, and the black family, dedicate themselves to the pursuit of education and excellence, adhere to a black work ethic, commit to self-discipline and respect, disavow the pursuit of middle-classness, and pledge to use their skills to build the black community. Members promise to use their resources to strengthen black institutions and support black leadership in the church and society. On the issue of middle-classness, the black value statement emphasized black identity over class identity. The black pursuit of a middle-class life was permissible, as long as it didn't undermine the racial identity shared by black men and women of all social classes. Barack Obama met Jeremiah Wright in October 1987. He was a young, unknown community organizer, and Wright was at the height of his leadership at Trinity. Though Wright boasted that his congregation included black parishioners of all social and economic classes, most of his fellow African-American ministers in Chicago knew that Trinity was attracting large numbers of black professionals. Obama described Wright as a man in his late 40s with silver hair, a silver mustache and goatee, and dressed in a three-piece suit. Wright said he would try to help Obama with his community organizing work, but warned him that some African-American Christians in Chicago, and mostly white Christians, believed he and his message were too radical. He also thought Obama's efforts at uniting churches on the South Side was too idealistic and bound to fail. The black churches were far too divided over matters of doctrine and social issues 
to join in any kind of unified effort for change. Wright reminded Obama of what Joseph's brothers had said to him in Genesis 37, behold the dreamer. Obama would also quickly learn that part of the work of bringing churches together required managing the egos of the pastors. Wright also invited Obama to church. On the way out the door, the future president picked up a copy of Trinity's Black Value System and read it in his car. He would return to Wright's office several times over the course of the next two decades as the pastor became a spiritual mentor. Wright was always ready to answer Obama's questions about God, spirituality, and Christian theology. They no doubt talked about Samuel DeWitt Proctor, one of Wright's mentors and the pastor of Abyssinian Baptist Church, a congregation where, as we discussed in the last episode, Obama occasionally stopped by for Sunday morning services during his undergraduate years at Columbia. Obama was also attracted to Trinity and its commitment to the social gospel. He started attending Sunday services and eventually responded to an altar call. It was because of these newfound understandings that religious commitment did not require me to suspend critical thinking, disengage from the battle for economic and social justice, or otherwise retreat from the world that I knew and loved, Obama wrote. That I was finally able to walk down the aisle of Trinity United Church of Christ one day and be baptized. It came about as a choice and not an epiphany. The questions I had did not magically disappear. But kneeling beneath that cross on the south side of Chicago, I felt God's spirit beckoning me. I submitted myself to his will and dedicated myself to discovering his truth. After he returned to Chicago permanently following his studies at Harvard Law School, Obama made Trinity his church home. He told Chicago Sun-Times reporter Kathleen Falsani in 2004 that he attended Trinity every week, a regular at the 11 a.m. service. Though it does not appear that Obama got involved in this life of the church beyond attendance at services and personal meetings with Wright, he had certainly found a spiritual base for his activism and future political life. Wright officiated at his wedding and dedicated both of his daughters. For 20 years, Barack Obama was a member of Jeremiah Wright's church. During those years, what did he hear from Wright's pulpit? Cultural critic Michael Eric Dyson described Wright as one of the most intellectually sophisticated and scholarly ministers in the land. He reads widely and thinks deeply about the pressing religious and social issues that cram his sermons. He possesses a musical voice with intonations brilliantly regulated during the course of his sermon delivery, rising and falling as emotion and circumstance dictate. His diction is flawless and his articulation precise. Most of what Obama witnessed during his weekly visits to Trinity was right expounding upon the Bible and applying its lessons to the life of his congregation. He preached about God's unexpected blessings, the power of the Holy Spirit, and a real Satan who sought to distract believers from following Jesus's narrow path. He preached sin and redemption, God's presence and God's silence. Every sermon drew from a carefully exegeted passage from the Old or New Testament. 
Wright preached on themes familiar to Christians of all races, but he always seasoned his sermons with illustrations and metaphors that connected his audience to the Black experience. He reminded his congregation that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit, was present with them amid the sufferings and injustices they faced as African-Americans, injustices over which they had no control. Wright preached about a God who despised slavery and oppression and wanted all people to be free. He took traditional theology and melded it into a message about God that people needed to hear. Theology could not be separated from experience. Pastoral ministry must meet people where they are. And for Wright, that was on the south side of Chicago. He made sure that his congregation did not buy into the white lie, as he called it, presented in popular culture, advertising, literature, and even some churches, that black people were somehow deficient. He asked them to see themselves not through the eyes of the white Eurocentric world, but through the eyes of God. And he reminded them to do the same to others so that they might avoid resentment and anger toward white people. This was the only way to break the cycle of pain, as he called it, that black men and women endured in America. Wright taught black history from the pulpit and often rattled off long lists of black celebrities from the worlds of entertainment, politics, and sports. He told stories of apartheid, slavery, the civil rights movement, and the Underground Railroad. His sermons often included quotes from and references to black theologians, intellectuals, and activists. This is what it meant to be unashamedly black and unapologetically Christian. For example, in a sermon on the life of the Old Testament character Esther, titled, When You Forget Who You Are, Wright compared the Jewish girl's captivity in Babylon to the captivity of the enslaved in America. He chided Esther for assimilating to the Babylonian world and used her story to warn his congregation not to fall into the same trap by assimilating to the dominant white culture in America. Esther forgot who she was, Wright preached, and this led her to seek ambition and status in a foreign land at the expense of her Jewish heritage. The lesson was obvious. Like Esther, black Christians should not forget how much they needed God, but they must also not let their behavior be determined by the white world's expectations. Babylon was always a metaphor for the United States in Wright's sermons, as it was for black preachers throughout American history. In a sermon titled, Faith in a Foreign Land, Wright moved back and forth freely between the Old Testament accounts of the Jews in Babylon and the plight of African-Americans in the United States. These exiles became schooled in Babylonian literature, from Beowulf to Virginia Woolf, he thundered, and their heritage was wickedly wiped away from the tissues of their memory banks. Wright added, they became skilled in Babylonian philosophy from Descartes to Meister Eckhart from Immanuel Kant to Jean-Paul Sartre, from existentialism to nihilism, and their heritage was demonically destroyed in the devious process. Parts of Wright's sermons on family life read like they came from a white evangelical family values ministry. 
but the social and cultural context was always different. Wright was well aware of the weaknesses of the black nuclear family. At one point, he actually said it was falling apart. And he brought a biblical message in an attempt to strengthen it. Obama probably heard sermons exhorting Chicago African-Americans to take up the hard work of sustaining a good marriage and to always keep God at the center of their relationship with their spouse. He urged parents to tell their children about Christ and find times for family Bible reading and prayer. Wright urged parents to demand uniqueness from their children. When all the boys want to wear pants halfway down their hips with the belt open and the gym shoes untied, he sermonized. Tell them to pull your pants up on your body, fasten your belt, tie your shoes, put on a shirt and tie, and stand up like a man and learn something other than, yo, what's up? He suggested they take Martin Luther King Jr., Malcolm X, and even Christian heart surgeon Ben Carson as role models. Parents were to demand excellence of their children. He told fathers to put God first in their lives, trust in the Lord for their futures, seek God's guidance in life, and pray for God's blessings. The father's behavior, the father's morals, and the father's example, he said, set the stage upon which the children act out the drama of their lives. Fathers must be men of commitment and responsibility. But too often, Wright added, they are men who make babies but do not help raise babies. They have no time for homework or the holy. Got time for golf, but no time for God. And time for the ladies, but no time for the Lord. Bad fathers were selfish and self-centered, Wright believed. They wanted to be saved, but they did not want to act saved nor did they care much about preparing their children for the systemic racism that would hound them and haunt them because of the color of their skin and the texture of their hair. African-American children, Wright preached, have special needs in this Eurocentric wasteland of lily-white lies and outright distortions. It is hard to know what Obama gleaned from sitting through Jeremiah Wright's sermons. But Obama would later write, I was drawn to the power of the African-American religious tradition to spur social change. Out of necessity, the black church had to minister to the whole person. Out of necessity, the black church rarely had the luxury of separating individual salvation from collective salvation. It has to serve as the center of the community's political, economic, and social, as well as spiritual life. It understood in an intimate way the biblical call to feed the hungry and clothe the naked and challenge powers and principalities. In the history of these struggles, I was able to see faith as more than just a comfort to the weary or a hedge against death. Rather, it was an active, palpable agent in the world. This was indeed the Black Christianity of Jeremiah Wright, and Obama seemed to have imbibed much of it. We also know that he was especially moved by a right sermon titled Audacity to Hope. That sermon became a defining part of Obama's political future. So stay tuned. In the next episode, we will examine the audacity of hope 
and take an even deeper dive into the theology and prophetic witness of Jeremiah Wright. History of Evangelicals and Politics is produced by Casey Lehman. It is a podcast for patrons of Current, an online platform that includes daily commentary, reflection, and judgment from diverse and talented writers representing positions across the political spectrum. Current also hosts The Way of Improvement Leads Home, a blog dedicated to reflections on American history, politics, religion, and academic life. This podcast is made possible by our patrons. Please consider supporting us by heading over to currentpub.com and clicking the red support button. Have you made the switch to NYX? Millions of women have made the switch to the revolutionary period underwear from NYX. That's K-N-I-X. Period panties from NYX are like no other, making them the number one leak-proof underwear brand in North America. They're comfy, stylish, and absorbent, perfect for period protection from your lightest to your heaviest days. They look, feel, and machine wash just like regular underwear, but feature incognito protection that has you covered. You can shop sizes from extra small to 4XL. Choose from all kinds of colors, prints, and different styles, from bikinis to boy shorts, thongs to high-rise. You've got to try NYX. See why millions are ditching disposable, wasteful period products and have switched to NYX. Go to knix.com and get 15% off with promo code TRY15. That's nix.com promo code TRY15 for 15% off life-changing period underwear. That's knix.com.